0: Um, I think that employers need to be agile and, and in being agile also to listen very carefully to what's working for people. We're going to have to write the playbook. I don't think the playbook exists.
1: Welcome to the Faith at Work podcast. I'm Ken Kennard and I'm joined by Dr. Chip Roper and Sarah Evers. Now here we are two years into the pandemic and we've been keeping an eye on changes in the workplace. Remote work has become more normal and some companies are designing around a permanent remote workforce. And we wondered, how is this affecting the relationships between employers and employees? And what are the implications of this for productivity, innovation, and company culture? To dive into these and other topics related to faith in work, we invited Scott Stevenson from Verisk Analytics to join us. Last time he was with us, remote work was new to most workers and he observed that individual productivity was rising but innovation was on the decline. Since then, the pandemic has worn on to various degrees and Russia invaded Ukraine, which affected his business directly. So let's pick it up where Sarah introduced Scott to get our conversation going.
2: All right, well, we're thrilled to have Scott Stevenson here with us. He's the chairman, president and CEO at Verisk Analytics. He's a values-based leader who launched the Verisk Way which is the company's principles to be remarkable, add value, and innovate. And those guide how Verisk engages with customers, employees, stakeholders, and communities. And under his leadership, Verisk has been named one of the world's best employers, one of the world's most innovative companies, and something I'm incredibly curious about, one of America's best employers for women. He is committed to social responsibility and serving others, and among his civic and charitable volunteer roles, he's a board chair at the Bowery Mission and an elder at Central Presbyterian Church in New York City. Scott, we're thrilled you're here. We're excited to hear from you. Thank you for joining oh,
3: thanks, us. Thanks, Sarah. It's my pleasure. Scott, it's great to have you back with us. I think the last time we talked like this was in a, was early pandemic, and you were you're at the Lake House somewhere, I think in Wisconsin. So it's great to connect with you again this way. Um, Thank as, you. As we jump in, just give us a little bit of a sense of, of Verisk and what what the company does.
0: Yeah, so the our company is about um, assembling large data sets and trying to make sense of them through hopefully some advanced analytic methods, um, which you know often often kind of get summarized as machine learning. Uh, and then we write a lot of software to um, hopefully. Uh, get the the signals which come out of that analysis, as well as the underlying data sets, if that's, if that's what our customers want, um, to get all of that into their hands in a way that it's all easily consumable and is surrounded by software that helps them get even more value out of the content we're providing them, which might, one of the ways to do that might be to integrate some of our content with other data sets that they already have inside of their own companies. And um, we do our work in a few different vertical markets, the primary ones being um, the uh, property and casualty insurance industry, although we've extended out into the life insurance domain, and the global energy ecosystem, which is everything from oil and gas to all of the renewables that have uh, grown up. But fundamentally, we're trying to help our customers make better decisions, and we put together very large amounts of data to try to support them. We're we probably got I you know I don't have the precise number, but I'm going to guess 30 to 40 petabytes of data that that um, that we make use of, and we and we try to solve all sorts of problems, which can include fighting fraud and optimizing pricing and making operations more
3: uh, productive. It could be any or all of the above. Wow. Okay. So so is it saying it's risk is it, it's a risk management or mis- mitigation business is that too small does that well that... you know it,
0: it, that's definitely a part of what we do and that's even you know it's the last four letters in the in the name of the company but um, and we started out in, in a place where we were more narrowly uh, focused on trying to observe different modes of risk um, but we've kind of expanded from there and so it's more I, I, I think of it more as overall optimization based upon great, analytics and great and great software, which has the effect of reducing risk, but also can increase productivity or growth or, you know, all of the above. So, I mean, that's part of the way that the company can grow actually is by redefining
3: itself a little bit so that the, you know, the envelope is, is a little bit bigger. Right. Right. And you just introduced a new term to, I think me and some others petabytes. What's a petabyte? It's a thousand terabytes. (laughs) <laughs> 1,000 terabytes. Okay. All right. So everybody's minds are expanding right now. So
0: no, here, here here's a way you can think about it. Uh, uh, a, a petabyte would be the equivalent of about a thousand to fifteen hundred really high quality high quality format movies. Huh. Okay. I mean, and that's a lot of content because if you think about every all the you know all the yeah. pixels that are a part of any one cell of a of a movie it's
3: that's a lot of data wow that's insane yeah. very interesting well great that's a really helpful overview of varis and let's just give us a little bit about you like tell us a little bit about your background your you know um your faith journey what should we know about you yeah um well
0: uh i i am the middle of three boys my my parents don and diane were both from the same little town in the panhandle of texas my father was the first one on either side of the family to go to and Graduate from college, and um, they that my my parents traveled a great distance in their lives because uh, my my uh, my dad uh, got hired by this very promising emerging company called IBM, and so his career was this you know incredible ride on what was I mean I don't think we you know IBM is kind of what it is today, but back then it was sort of it was sort of Google plus Apple, you know? I mean, it was yeah. just such a dominant sort of a thing. So uh, they, got to, they really got to see the world and my brothers and I got to come along for the ride. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that the, uh, all the, um, you know, I- investing in life that they did and the purpose they brought to things, I mean, my opportunities were a function of, you know, what they, um, all the, all, everything that they did. One of my favorite one of my favorite um, personal uh, mementos is I have a a, a, a yardstick, and it it uh, it says on it Stevenson Brothers Lumber. So my great grandfather and even the generation before him, they were in the lumber business in little little towns in Texas. And so my great my great grandparents on my father's side lived in a town called Happy Texas with population 100. But the thing about this, the thing about this yardstick that I love so much is it says Stevenson Brothers Lumber, Happy Texas, telephone 74.
2: <laughs> so if, if 74.
0: you wanted to call Stevenson Brothers, you know, you, you, you do the rotary thing oh and gosh. hello, Madge, can Getting I, you know, awesome. can I have 74 please? You know, that was how small and how far back it goes, but like, you know, just successive generations and, and a sense of you know sort of standing in that flow and benefiting from it. And uh, but one thing about the, the the home that I grew up in was we did not go to church. There was no really no interest in that. My, my particularly my dad. He the, this little town in the panhandle that they grew up in apparently was dominated by the Baptist churches, and mm-hmm. um, uh, it was kind of uh, you know you can't dance, you can't play cards, you know sort of a thing. And you know, my father just really didn't like, you know, he just rebelled against that. He didn't like that and just kept him from, you know, any interest in, in, in any of that. So I grew up with no background at all in the faith. And um, at the age of 23, I was found by Christ. Basically, somebody handed me a Bible and I, and they suggested I start reading in the Gospel of John. And I thought, this Jesus guy is like the coolest, you know, guy I've ever, you know, encountered. And uh, so it was really, it was, uh, there was, you know, there were people around me that also were great and wanted to, you know, help me kind of understand what I was reading. But the word was very, you know, always has been, but was very powerful in my life. So I went from, I really think I went from death to life because I think spiritually I was not very alive at all. And somebody just, that,
3: somebody just gave you a Bible and that's.
0: A friend from high school. You know, I was, I came out of college. So I had this fantastic college experience. And now I'm a few months out of college. And I realized I'm not happy. You know, it was, it was very disturbing to me because um, I was getting everything I wanted in life. So, it, you know, I thought to myself in a kind of, not very, you know, not very deliberate way, but as a 22 year old, it's like, well golly, if I'm gonna keep getting everything I think I want in life and still not be happy, that doesn't sound like a good recipe. So I just start, I started describing my condition to a friend from high school. And he said, have you ever read the Bible? I said, no, <laughs> as in, why would I do that? So, but he went and got one for me and, and handed it to me and it made all the difference.
3: Hey, say a little bit about your experience in business school because that, there was a point there, I believe, at the end of business school that was really clarifying yeah. for you in terms of your own sense of calling and vocation and the work you do yeah. as, a, as an executive. So I was,
0: Right, so I went off to um, business school I was about it was about six months after I had made, you know, I prayed a prayer of commitment uh, to Christ, but I was just this, you know, wet cement brand new uh, Christian and the uh, the the fellowship group. uh, So I went to Harvard to get an MBA and I mentioned that only to say, say that the structure of the graduate school fellowship was principally all of all of the graduate students from all of the graduate schools. So medicine and architecture and law, et cetera. And so that right away had kind of an impact on me because just sort of the, the breadth of backgrounds, just it's kind of a signal, you know, it just it sort of hits you a little bit. But then even more than that, in the last year of your, your graduate school program, you know, however many years that happened to represent, you were invited into a process that was called ordination to daily work. And which sounds, you know, very you know, highfalutin, but basically, it was, you know, the point of view of this was, um, you know, you are you're a minister of the gospel, and that that actually can be your primary definition of who you are and what you're doing. Um, and so anticipate anticipate um, that, you know, anticipate that that's the work you're going to be doing. And so then it puts you, you know, that kind of approach puts you in a in a context which is, oh, okay. You're going to go and be a doctor, and you're going to go and be an architect, and you're going to go and, uh, you know, be a lawyer, and I'm going to go and presumably be in the business world. Um, but, the, you know, while that's what we do, the the real definition of our vocation is that we're all ministers of the gospel, just applying it in different... And, and by the way, and, and, and that that really counts in addition to others who are going to seminary and getting seminary degrees, it's like, don't, don't exclude yourself you know, from, from this host of people that are, can be uh, ministers of the, of the gospel. So we literally wrote a paper and the paper was kind of a, a going in plan, you know, basically of how will you, what's your thought about how to have this vocation on behalf of the, the you know, the gospel, and you'll also be, you know, working professionally, however you're going to work. And, it, I, you know, I fed off that my entire adult life, basically, just in the sense that the, the mental, you know, kind of the mental map for me is, okay, I happen to be in the marketplace. You know, the primary sort is I'm a minister of the gospel. And, um, you know, that's, and I'm not saying that I've always done that well, but I've always had that framework. Right. It's like your vocational identity. Right. And so I, I've always counted myself so fortunate to have that experience so early in my walk with Christ.
3: Mm-hmm. And in your career, too. I mean, it was, it was fairly early in your career. Absolutely. Well, very helpful. I think that's important context uh, as we dive, dive into the rest of this conversation, just to know um, where, what your company does and where you're coming from and that foundation. Uh, the last time we were together, we talked a little bit about, you know, it was early pandemic. We're talking about remote work and everything. And I think what I remember you saying was productivity was up and innovation was down. And here we are, it's the end. And there's lots of buzz about people coming back, not coming back. Where, 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 does what, all that look like from your desk? You know, remote work, dispersed team, the innovation question. Right. Like, future yeah, work so really I, all I, goes in that direction.
0: Yeah, those, those, so those observations persist. So I still think it's the case that for people that do discrete work that, is, you know, that can be, you know, uh, pursued more as an individual contributor, um, productivity in those areas remains high. And I also think that the the other side, which is just how innovative are we being, um, I think that inventing our future really has slowed down a little bit. And I talk, you know, I try to talk to a lot of other people. I hear I I, I hear that a lot. So I think that may be our gen, gen, general condition. And then I would just overlay that with one other thing, which is uh, sort of the disruption in the talent pool, basically. Um, which, which I think was, which was a function of a couple of things. One is um, just the sort of the, um, the difference in the pattern by, in which people are interacting with one another at work and it's, it's just more shallow than it used to be. You know, I mean, just literally uh, if you have, if your entire experience of somebody is over this medium, it doesn't go as deep basically. And then uh, some companies, particularly pulling out of the pandemic, are trying to skill up and, 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 and the economy still is trying to be, become more digitized and, and data analytic um, and productive. And for all of those reasons, um, the competition for talent has heated up as well. So there's less mooring at what had been our company and the overlay is, or whatever your company happens to be at all, you know, many, most companies. But then the, the bidding for talent has really increased also. And, you know, some people have said, yeah, I'll work. But, like, I really have a point of view about I want to be able to, you know, look at, look at the Cascade Mountains every morning. So, like, you know, if that's where I'm going to live. If you want to work with me, you have to, you know, sort of accept that. So a lot of things I think are really kind of uh, contingent at the moment and now we move into the next phase and I think you know, this is something we could all kick around but I, I think a lot of people really the community which is their workplace is important for them and you know we are social beings and, and there's something additional that happens when we get together face to face. So I think most people start out wanting some of that in their, in their life and yet at the same time, some of the degrees of freedom or the lack of the need to commute or the pressure of place, you know, um, some of those degrees of freedom have been appreciated by people also. So I think that, I think that the two, the, really the two thoughts I have about all this is um, I think that employers need to be agile and, and in being agile also to listen very carefully to what's working for people. We're going to have to write the playbook. I don't think the playbook exists. So that that would be the first observation. The second is I think that in the pandemic moment and going forward, one of the things that has just sort of been ripped open and kind of exposed is um, the degree of coherence and cohesion uh, inside of the, the culture, which is your your company, the community. Are is your com- company really a community of people? Is and are you community minded? And um, uh, you know, if you don't have that, I think you've felt it and I think you're going to continue to feel it, actually. Um, so if we're if we're smart and we're responsive, maybe we can get even better coming out of this. But I but I'm pretty sure that some companies that don't start out with a with a deep and positive
3: culture, they've already felt it and they will they will continue to feel it. It accentuates the negative. Right. And are, yeah. do you guys have what's your do you have a. A plan, a playbook, what's your that you're writing, but what are what were some of the features of how you've you've attacked?
0: Yeah, so one would be believing that the face-to-face interactions are fairly important, both for people's satisfaction with being a part of the community, but also for reasons of inventing the future, you know, the point we were on before. We need people to we need people to be physically getting together. And uh, another thing we could talk, I know this is not our our purpose today, but, um, you know, we went through an exhaustive process of asking people to tell us about um, their vaccination status while protecting everybody's information individually, but we needed to know what our pattern was. And so, you know, there's, uh, we're, we're happy that virtually 100% of our colleagues trusted us with that information and over 90% of our community is uh, vaccinated. So you can have a pretty high degree of confidence when you walk into the office. That you're you're in a fairly safe environment, and you know we make testing available, and you know right. et, et cetera. But but the, but the point I was gonna uh, make here is, if if you have a five person team, I mean just to make it silly and simple, and one of them comes in on Monday, and one of the <laughs> a different one on Tuesday, and like you've gotten no benefit out of people coming into the office. So so you need to do enough orchestrating to where there's density. So that's the first point and the second part of our approach is we're trying to we're trying to push kind of the design of all that and the decision rights as far out into the organization as we can so the frontline you know team leader of six people you tell us what you think is the right pattern and norm for your you know your group <clears throat> and we need to make sure there's enough consistency so that you know people on team A say well like you know my you know my leader has said we're going to be in here 4 days a week but my friend who just works, you know, one floor below me, his team only is coming in one day a week or two. Like, is that fair? You know, how does that work? And so right. there needs to be enough consistency. And yet different kinds of work do, you know, require relatively different amounts of in-person, you know, deep, the, kind of the deep and long interaction that in-person really helps with. So we do want there to be room for customization and difference, but not so much that it doesn't feel like there's coherence across the company. So that's kind of how we're, you know,
3: going into it, basically. There's a lot there, you know, just it's a very much the TBD, it sounds like, to be determined in, in many ways and playing out. Um, For sure. sure. <laughs> we could just talk about that the whole time, but we've got some other things I'd like like to talk about. This There's a war in Europe and um, it's not the kind of contingency that you... Help your clients prepare for. I understand in some cases anyway. And but how how do you respond to these types of things, you know, both personally as a lead, and as a leader? You know, it's I don't know if we call this a black swan or not. It's been coming probably for a while. But how do you react yeah. to it, and how do you lead through it? Well,
0: personally, it's you know first of all it's a humani- humanitarian tragedy, crisis, and you know three million refugees, and um and I and I can actually tell you a couple stories related to all that. And by the way. The humanitarian crisis goes in both directions. There are there are two combatants in you know in, in this, and one is the aggressor, for sure. But you know I can share a story on that. So you know I I uh, it's a tragedy. You know as a as a you know human being I deplore it, and um, it's a little bit scary because the aggressor has how many thousands of nuclear weapons? You know if they I mean like. When and when might they pull one or two of those out of inventory and, you know, what, under what circumstances? So it feels like a very fraught moment um, for all of those reasons. Um, uh, I, I think that part of what has been demonstrated has been uh, uh, a deep coordination among the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the coalition of the willing nations to try to, Organized to provide, you know, resources, but also actually to, you know, to resist, you know, to as a as a collective. Um, I think it demonstrates the importance of of multilateral agreements in the world, and you know, the United States was kind of over the, you know, in the prior administration was actually showing relatively little interest in multilateral agreements, and. Uh, you know, I thought then, and I think now, that that's you know, uh, not not the best way, not the best thing. So anyway, so those are some thoughts about the about the uh, you know the conflict. Not something, not something um, as as a you know as a single event that would have been high in our you know planning ex, you know planning processes. But you do have to generally be aware of the ability of you know for things to be disrupted. You know. Like a pandemic, <laughs> right, right. for example, um, and so I think it. I think it teaches us, you know, once again that we have to um, we have to be agile, and we ha- and we have to know what's core, and then how do you keep core going even when things get disrupted? And so now, just uh, just two quick stories um, from within our own experience. So at the, at the outbreak of the conflict, we had seven people in Ukraine. And the very first, you know, on the very first day of the um, on the very first day of the uh, conflict, our communication to them was above all else: be safe. What 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 do you need to do to be safe, and how can we support you in that? And of those seven people, one of them, who was a single mom, had um, a passport or visa that enabled her to go to Switzerland. So she took her children and um, went. The other, six, the other six joined the Ukrainian army. And wow. what was interesting about that to me was, um, I've asked you know, friends who are in Ukraine or connected to Ukraine, is that, the, is that the reaction you would have expected necessarily? And the answer is, well, maybe not that strong. You know, for, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but I think that the resolve of the Ukrainian people has, has really caught the attention of the world Maybe including the Ukrainians, you know, to a degree. Yeah. So, but the other side of it that I just wanted to speak to is that you know there's what governments do to governments, but then there's human beings. So we had 43 people in our Moscow office, and um, basically, we drew the conclusion that that office was not going to remain viable for for any number of reasons, some related to the sanctions, but we were also worried about our folks because you know, as, as the folks with us today know, the Russian government has criminalized two things. One is referring to a war or referring to an, an invasion. That's now criminal. And the other thing is a company which stops, you know, unilaterally stops doing business with Russian companies. That also is now criminal, not civil. And so our concern was because, because our company uh, um, has taken the, the view um, that we don't want to continue to do work with these Russian entities, and we don't want to you know, muzzle ourselves in terms of what, what we call it, basically, what's, you know, what's going on. Our concern was that as we started to do those kinds of things, if our Russian colleagues were still on our payroll, you know, they're not gonna come, Russia's not gonna come to the United States and arrest me, but they might arrest my colleagues in Moscow. And so we needed to actually take a hard step, which was to dissolve the office, so that our folks wouldn't then be lie. And we we basically essentially gave them a year's worth of compensation, and also said, if you have the ability to be somewhere else, we actually you know we'd be happy to have you as a remote worker. Hmm. Um, and the first wasn't tied to this. In other words, here's a year's worth of pay. And right, right. know that you have this optionality. Hmm. And so, one of the interesting things is, having said all of that, one of the few countries that has a, just a completely open border with Russia is Kazakhstan. And so, we stood up an office in the capital of Kazakhstan, and we said to our people in Moscow, "If you would like to work there, um, you know, we've 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 got a stand-up office. You know, we just popped it up." over half of them said that that's what they wanted to do. I mean, so think about it for a minute. They're saying, I will leave my country so that I can remain a part of you know, your, your company and we can all continue to work together. And from, the cap- from Moscow to the capital of uh, Kazakhstan, which is where we stood up the office, that's a 50-hour drive. So, I mean, this is, not like just a, this is not like going from Boston to New York. And over half the people in the office said, I'd like to seriously consider doing that. I mean, think about yourself. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll mo- if we drove for 50 hours from New York, we'd be where? Somewhere on our way to order.
3: Hawaii, I think
0: middle of Mexico or, you know, beyond. But like, you know, would we be would we be willing to do that?
3: (laughs) You know, but so this is just a news headline. I mean, this is a reality that you're dealing with as a firm. This is a reality. Right. And and so
0: my point is human beings, you know, on both sides, not political leaders, but human beings are being affected on both sides.
3: How does your faith play into? Obviously, I'm assuming you make decisions as a team you know right. just knowing you and the way you operate but how does your faith play into what you bring to the conversation on things like this people above all else
0: the well-being of people first and then Hands down. and then render and then render you know everything else in that context it's mm-hmm. great yeah i mean you know so in closing our in closing the moscow office and stop and stopping to work stop, stopping the work with the russian entities that were our customers you know we're losing revenue but like I don't even slow down on that decision. You know, it's like you have to come from a principled place. Right, it's the right
3: thing to do. Um, so you let the chips fall where they may. Speaking no of pun we, intend- oh, yeah. no pun intended, right? Because we don't like chips falling. Yeah, I don't. No, that's not. That's not good. Um, so uh, there's an announcement made in uh, in your inter- investor relations department about you and um, yep. a transition that you're going to be going through. Tell us a little bit about
0: that. Sure. Uh, so this is my 22nd year at at Verisk. And, you know, just in the fullness of time, it just sort of, you just sort of get to a place where transition is more than, you know, just something that might dance in your mind a little bit. And a couple of weeks ago, I had my 50th earnings call. You know, those get a little bit old, I would say, <laughs> as well. So, But, you know, you can't really feel good about, about making a transition like this when, when you've got the job I've got, unless you feel really good about where the company is, and I do, and you feel really good about succession. I'm being succeeded by one of the people, one of my closest associates in the company. And so I'm I'm very um, comfortable that, you know, culture will be, I, I, I believe we have a very positive culture and that will be preserved and hopefully even extended. So, you know, you can't feel comfortable with it unless that's where you are, but that's where we are. And otherwise I feel very complete and I feel very satisfied about the journey with Verisk. I mean, it's been... A complete privilege. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And, and you know, in, in, in arriving at this uh, point, I'm actually uh, in a place where it sort of feels like almost I, 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 I've had this feeling two other times in my life, which is just I feel like I'm called to go somewhere new. It's a little bit like Abraham, but I'm not exactly sure where it is. I just, but I'm just called to go somewhere new. Um, I had that when I left Boston Consulting Group. On the path which ultimately landed me in the in the position I'm in now and I also felt that way when I left the job I had out of undergraduate where I felt like I was kind of called to something new and it eventually expressed itself as working at a place called Boston Consulting Group including some additional education and then I ended up there but the feeling was the same which is just like I think I'm supposed to go somewhere <laughs> so
3: uh, you know, I'm. I'm really. That sounds really it. subjective for a data guy,
0: <laughs> right?
3: Is it, but, but is it? Is it like? Is it through conversations with friends? Is it just this feeling that you can't escape? I mean, say a little bit more about it.
0: Well, you do have some pre. You know, particularly in the job that I've got right now, I've got a lot of important constituents, including our board of directors and um, the senior members of the management team, and there's just sort of a natural kind of something that you just you feel a lot is the people that are, you know, coming up behind you, you know, that are the most seniors but, you know, kind of at a slightly different point in their careers, they want their opportunity too. You know, I remember how I felt. I was the number 2 guy at our company for a number of years. And, you know, I wanted I wanted to have a shot at, you know, the seed and do that work and you Steer know, the ship. Yeah, and and certainly the, uh, you know, our board of directors um ha, you know, shares you know that view about sustainability and wanting to make sure that we're always, you know, moving into a great future. And this is actually the is a year of a milestone birthday for me. And, you know, Beth and I are up to almost eight grandchildren. We'll have our eighth show up relatively soon. So, you know, you have things like that, but but it's actually very intuitive. I think. I mean, in, in my case, at all at all three points, it's, it's there's been a big intuitive element of it as well. You know, my hope is that the Lord's will is I mean, he's. Fitted me to work in the marketplace and given me all these experiences, and 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 I enjoy it. You know, I'm like Eric Liddell. I feel his pleasure when I run. You know, I mean, it really is true. So I hope his will is that I, I somehow still am participating. You know, in the it kind of in commerce in the in the marketplace. We'll see what he has in mind. That would be my preference, um, and exactly what that would look like. I you know that's that's uh, to be determined. That's how you get
3: here. Yeah, well, that's great. It sounds like there's a lot of peace about where the company is, and there's a, maybe even a sense like you've, you know, you've you've run your lap. You know, you've you've done your contribution. I, I, I do.
0: You know, I really do feel that way. In and in a lot of ways, I feel. You know, I, I mean, you're always generating ideas about what's the next thing. And when you're in this um, digital data analytic world, there's always something you know new at 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 some level. But um, and a whole long story, but. In order to meet the needs of Verisk's shareholder constituents, on a go-forward basis, the company should probably attempt somewhat few, a, a, a somewhat shorter list of things. Right? Because I mean, th- this could also be a, a whole. So let's have this. Well, I'm not sure this is what really you know what you want to talk about, but you know, the public markets really they have trouble dealing with a, a large degree of complexity in the story that any one company represents. And we, we've attempted a lot of things. And I do, I, I think that probably to meet, you know, our uh, shareholder stakeholders, where they are a somewhat simpler story, you know, and my, if, if I have any gifts, they actually tend to go in the direction of do more and probably make it a little bit more complex.
3: So there's also just, you know, where are where's a, where's a company in its evolution? Yeah, and the appetite for innovation, at least publicly talking about innovation sounds like that's a factor in this too. So, well, well said. I want to bring Sarah and Ken on. We, they'll, I'm sure I have some questions for you. And then uh, we have a poll for those of you who are watching and listening uh, to, to tell us what you want to hear more, hear Scott talk about a bit more. So we'll look at that too. So, Sarah?
2: Yeah, thank you. Scott, I, thank you so much for sharing with us. I was, I was fascinated when you were talking about all that you did for the, your people, not just in Ukraine, but also your office in Russia and how you, you stood that office down and stood up a new office in Kazakhstan. Um, that got me thinking about the culture, the corporate culture at Verisk and what you had said earlier that uh, the cohesion of corporate culture is that you're a community of people. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the culture that you all have created that makes uh, Verisk a place where people would move um, and drive 50 hours to escape war, but to continue working after they've been given a year's worth of pay.
0: Yeah, yeah thanks for the question, Sarah. Well, I think that um, one of the sort of advantages I've always felt that, uh, that I had as a Jesus follower in work was, you know, all uh, we sit, how many, you know, how many hours and how many meetings have we been in where we've all got a Bible open in front of us and we're all reading the same words and we've read them many times and we're exploring them for, you know, new meaning. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I've had the experience so many times. I've read a verse 50 times and then on the 51st reading, somehow there's something a little different in it. You know, for me, and which is such a wonderful serendipitous kind. I mean, it's just it's it's such a beautiful thing, and it happens so routinely. But my point here is that our big ideas as Christians are written down, and we go back to them over and over and over again, and we're all looking at the same ones, and so it has an elevating effect for for us individually, but it also raises us as a community as well. It's there's a there's a there's an alignment in us in a and a a solidarity that comes from, you know, having the same big ideas in front of us and talking about them all the time and having a general alignment to them and affiliation. So one of the things that I think really matters if you're gonna build culture is you actually have to take your big ideas and write them down and then talk about them over and over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, a, a business leader could do worse than to think of themselves as a preacher you know, a preacher of a few core ideas and you you just you go back to them over and over and over again. And you were nice enough to reference the Verisk way, which actually has several ideas in it. It's not just one idea. It's got several ideas in it. But that but you know, I think you really shape culture by committing what you feel you know, your your basic, you know, your deepest convictions and commitments you know, commit them to commit them to writing and then and then and then live them and stand behind them. And, you know, I, I that probably sounds pretty, pretty simple and straightforward. And it is, I, but I guess it's not done as often as it might be done because, you know, I guess it just doesn't show up as much as it might. So I think that getting your core ideas down is, is a big one. I think that the policies that you fit to the company just speak volumes about whether or not you really are. Uh, whether you're fundamentally oriented to your, your people. You know, like, are they, are, they, are they sort of generic folks that are, you know, providing whatever work you think is needed? Or are you trying to um, care about them and support them in their own growth? And, you know, that expresses in so many different policies. It can be how rich is the 401 k program? How hard do you work at providing developmental opportunities to people? Um, you know et cetera. you could just you can keep going but you know so, some of what you really care about gets seen in in, the, in in these policies and then you know I just think that there's a big role for modeling you know the leaders just kind of modeling the you know sort of a, a personhood that embodies the values of, of the organization and I you know I'm, I'm not here to say that I've been perfect at that but I am aware that people watch their leaders you know and so it's kind of like you you naturally are going to be thinking about what your leaders talk about, and you're going to naturally be channeling at least some of, you know, some of their behaviors. And so I've always felt it was very important the way you know. I mean, we're, we've got ten thousand people in our organization, and routinely I probably interact with hundred to two hundred of them, and you know. So my my personhood and behavior in front of the one hundred to two hundred, I'm hope I hope then has a ripple effect out into the organization. So, you know, write down your big ideas, you know, express it in policies. And then just what is what 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 how are you modeling that? I think I I think for me, those have been a few of the things that
1: have been really important. That's great. Well, Scott, we're going to go to the poll in just a second. But first, I have one question for you. Um, You spent a lot of time analyzing risk. You talked about that. We just went through a pandemic. We're going through this war. Um, and for those of us that aren't in property and casualty or that aren't, you know, making great use of your miles of data, I'm just wondering if there's any lessons learned from the last couple of weeks about risk or a response to the unknown that you think would be helpful for us.
0: Um, I, I I think that taking the time up front to anticipate, it's really two things, Ken. It's. What are some specific things that could disrupt what we're doing, but also almost just having the category of disruption occurs? Um, so, you know, being of that being of that mind, I think that where that leads you should lead you is to have enough of a sense of a couple of scenarios which could really be consequential, and then. Test all of what you are and all the ways, all the ways that you operate, and all the ways you have reinforced your operations to know just how they are likely to respond if you get into some of these scenarios. And then, if you're finding yourself feeling uncomfortable with your, you know, sort of your degree of preparation, well, then prepare more um, and. Uh, you know, again, it's not, it's not rocket science, but I don't know that it happens a lot either because we just get so caught up in the moment. So if you can find the time to contemplate the bigger, broader and paint a, f- a few scenarios that might be mo- more challenging and then think about, okay, what do we need to do to be, be okay even if those things occur? Right.
1: Okay, great. That's super helpful. Let's go to the poll results. Now, all of these things on the poll are things you've already touched on. Uh, but we asked people to tell us more about what, you know, which ones did they want to hear more about the, the overwhelming, uh, pick here, it looks like is vocational identity. Uh, 50% of the people picked this one, seeing your business profession as a way to bring the gospel into the world and your going in plan that you talked about. Can you say more about that? Give us some more detail about what's behind that going in plan and that change of perspective and the impact that it's had.
0: Yeah, so the the orientation has been so um, fundamental for me. Um, uh, I would actually have to go back and resurrect the plan that I wrote when I was twenty five, um, but I'm pretty sure I have done very little of what was in that plan. You, you may remember Eisenhower was famous for saying the planning process is very valuable, plans are useless, <laughs> because, you know, because life is dynamic, and so. But you know, just preparing the mind and beginning to think about it. And so I'm, I'm really glad I went through that process. I'd have to go back and look at what I wrote down, but I, I think I probably, you know, in that iteration of the plan, I think I probably wrote down things like, well, maybe, I, you know, maybe I would go get, you know, a seminary degree at some point and kind of just have that as sideboard to what I was doing. And, you know, some things about, um, uh, you know, parachurch uh, uh, connectivity of which I've had, I've had a lot of that too, but, I would say that um, seeing business as a way to share the gospel, I actually think it's, I think it's simple. I think it's actually really simple. And that is, above all else, I, I think what matters is our willingness or lack of willingness to affiliate with Jesus publicly. You know? and, and, and it doesn't have to be you know, in the halls of your office. It does not have to be you know, like, I, I need to sit you down right now and give you the four spiritual laws. In fact, I would recommend against that. I don't think that's really going to be very effective. So then, you know, kind of at the other spectrum, something that a lot of us have in mind is um, kind of like you know, friend- friendship uh, evangelism. And the thing about, the, I mean, yeah, let's be friends for sure, no question about it. Let's be gracious, you know. Let's and let's enjoy people, you know. Jesus did, uh, but you can get stuck in. I'm so focused on the friendship and. You know, I, I may take it to a different place if I, you know, if I start to talk too much about faith matters, you know, like it may be that the other person isn't really interested in that. And, you know, being sensitive to that is actually a, a good idea. But there's, there's a place which isn't quite on either of those spectrums. And it's basically just the way, I, the way I've come to think of it is I feel like I meet so many people and I've, I haven't known them before. And we're we're talking, and you know, in the first fifteen minutes, I really, you know, they're going to be very upfront about what are what are they passionate about and what are they committed about. It's it's really the spirit of the age is that's part of the sort of the transparency that gets talked about so much. Is you know, well, you know, I could talk about the Boston Red Sox all day because you know I love them, and uh, uh, you know, I'm 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 really glad that my. You know, my, my, my baseball <laughs> affiliation has also resulted in the greatest number of World Series wins in the 21st century after decades of um, uh, suffering. You know, there's a lot of things that I could talk about, but you know, what's really, you know, first for me is, you know, I, I, just, I just think Jesus is unbelievable. You know, he's just, he's, he's, he's first in my affections. And so just the willingness to just, just say his name. Actually, I mean, Chip has heard me tell a story, I won't repeat it here, but I had an occasion early, relatively early in my career when I had a chance to say his name and I didn't. And, and it just, it, I mean, I, it caused me to feel grief. I really learned from that. And so, you know, are there ways that you can, and, and you know, I, I don't even use the label Christian anymore. And you know, there's another code, which is you can sort of talk about, I go to church, and then if there's some interest, it's like, well, maybe you could come with me to church. That's all good. I, I I'm I'm for all of that stuff. I'm not against that, but just the will. You know, just the willie. I I like to call myself a Jesus follower, and I like to you know when you do your one minute introduction, I just like to say that about myself, mostly because it's true, you know. And so and just and do people want to pursue it? Eight out of ten times, probably not, you know. But maybe two out of ten. And, They may talk about their own spiritual commitments or you just never know, but it actually can, if you do it, I think in the proper spirit, it can actually create room for the other person. But the willingness to affiliate with him publicly, I have come to believe, is the thing above all else that we have to offer in the marketplace. Just a natural, unaffected, yeah, that's
1: who I am. Great. So I know that um, Sarah, in her introduction, talked about um, some of the ways that Verisk has been voted best place in this and that. One of them was uh, best place, uh, best employers for women. Um, I was curious about that. What 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 does that mean? How did you get that? Um, what are your thoughts about that?
0: Yeah. So one of the things about all these lists is somebody found it useful to make a list. You know, it's kind of like it can be the cover story of you know your magazine or your whatever, Forbes, or, you know, so make a list. Um, you know, people like to have lists and people like to be the ones that put together the list. So once you've said, I'm going to have a list of the world's 25 best, whatever, or 50, then they have to put 50, they have to put 50 people or 50 companies on the list. (laughs) So part of where it comes from is somebody wanted to make a list. Um, and then they have, then they have their criteria. So for example, um, that, that one, um, uh, which i believe was from forbes basically they they do these really big panel surveys and they they ask people for their it's kind of, it's kind of like doing an engagement survey for the whole population and you just see how people respond to their employers and so somebody you know it's it's like a jd powers quality rating you know so on on that one they just asked lots of people and the women who who worked at Veris gave you know, gave answers which were more positive than the answers that were being given by you know other people. Now you can say underneath that what's going on, you know, but that's that's really where a designation like that comes from.
1: Yeah, any clues about what's going on that they would respond that way?
0: You know, I think it's the um, I think it's the general culture. We get very high marks from our people. We've you know, Verisk has been named you know a great place to work by the great place to work Institute for, I think six years in a row now or seven or something like that. Um, and so I think it's, it's kind of in the water generally. And I would say that the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the women in our community, I think share those views kind of equally. I actually would have to go back and parse the data, but I think that, I think that across male and female, the the degree of affiliation with the company is about equally high. Um, So we generally score well when somebody asks the question, how do people that work at Verisk feel about working at Verisk? Uh, And I think our women, as well as our men, are are a reflection of that. I mean, we've tried to be sensitive to some of the issues that maybe are perhaps differentially felt by women. So we were kind of very early in um, the Uh, the, the, the movement towards maternity leave, you know, we kind of were exceeding statutory requirements at, you know, pretty early stages in our journey. So I think that was, you know, there are things like that, but, you know, then there's actually, we offer paternity leave too. So, you know, how does, how does that one uh, shake out? We've been very, we've been very alert to uh, so-called return ships. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but basically, um, people, and it usually is women who were in their careers and then they stepped out often for family reasons, and then sort of making special efforts to try to encourage returnship and onboarding in that context. And that's been something that we've really we've really cared about. It could also, honestly can just be as simple as if you look at the office of the CEO where we are, um, we've got a lot of senior women,
3: you know, and I that probably, creates a degree of um, encouragement, you know, for the women in our organization. And Scott, no doubt, it's, I mean, it's part of this people first ethos that not just, not just that you developed um, theoretically, but you developed because it's, that's how you operate, you operate as a leader. And that's part of, I think what God has woven into you and your vision, we call it a community, the company as a community. And uh, community, I think if you have that frame,
0: it, it goes a long way.
3: Yeah. Well, listen. Um, we're hitting up. To, we're running into the hour here, but we want to thank you as, for being with us. And as always, you had just great, uh, great things to share. A lot of passion. A lot of wisdom. Uh, grateful uh, for the for the tenure and impact you've had at Verisk, and excited to hear what's next. Uh, we'll be praying with you yeah. along on that. And uh, I think you know you said some things today that all of us can wrestle with, and I think grab a hold of. And that sense of being ordained or called to our work, whatever it is, uh, that that we're gospel ministers, I think that's I think that's we can all have that. We can all go after that and have that as an anchor for who we are in our work. I think this idea of affiliating with Jesus is so powerful and so simple, as we there's there takes away all the math we, you know that we do in our minds. Can I say this? Can I do this? No, I just I'm I'm a follow I'm a I'm a Jesus follower. And I, and I think your advice just in general of thinking, you know, disruption happens. That's, that's, that's the way the world is. It's a broken world and, and thinking through what some of those disruptions are and having that, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of wisdom that's advocated in Proverbs, just to be aware of danger that's coming and plan accordingly and, and ultimately leave it in God's hands uh, after you've done that, not before. And right, I think right. that's, uh, right. so, so much here, uh, but we're, so we're really grateful for you, grateful to have you with us and, uh, Wish you all the best in the next chapter as that unfolds. Yeah, thank
0: you so much. I I just always enjoy our time together. Just wish we had more.
3: Appreciate that, Scott. And thank you all of you who are listening uh, here on the call. It's great to see many of your faces and good friends. And appreciate you joining in, filling out the poll, and guiding the conversation.
1: If you're looking for support and counsel for your dilemmas at work, reach out to us for coaching. We would love to help you find and apply God's wisdom to your work life. Our clients consistently report a sense of relief and clarity as they work with a faith-based certified coach. You can sign up for an initial coaching conversation at vocacenter.org consult. This conversation was recorded in front of a live virtual audience, and you can be a part of that audience. Register to join us and shape the conversation with your questions. Sign up for the next live webinar at vocacenter.org slash webinar.